could we find that whistle because that's going to drive uh, that's going to do, do we know what it is oh it's a hearing aid is it really okay um, I'd ask you to turn this morning in your Bibles to John chapter 20 and it's much more important that you hear than that we're not Hearing the whistling, so don't worry about it. John chapter 20. Um, a few weeks ago, our own Barbara Lear uh, wrote a contribution on our blog about Mary Magdalene. And it's gotten me thinking about Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene is, is, a, is a special figure in the Gospels. And I want us to look today at Mary Magdalene surrounding the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. I would like us to read um, verses 1 to 20, or to 18. It's a fairly long passage, but I think it's important that we get a sense of the whole flow. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. I say that every time we read Scripture publicly. Um, and having been down in Florida and being interviewed by media people, it's funny to watch them. As you begin to quote scripture, their immediate response is, well, there are a number of holy books, and why would you believe the Bible any more than any other of the religious holy books in the world? And I said to the woman that asked me this yesterday, I said that the Bible is the only book that comes from God. Many other books are the record of a people group's search for God. But the Bible is the only time that God has lowered himself to take our language and to record what he says. I want you to notice as we read this, and you'll see this all through the Gospels, how very specifically this book is pointed to as the source of truth. And uh, you, somebody recently was asking me why I believe that the Bible is inspired and why I don't believe that all the critics are right in pointing out that it is faulty. And I said that the principal reason I believe the Bible is true, well, actually, the principal reason is that God has been kind to me and has given me that faith. And this is a faith. This is not something that we can work on on our own. But I said the principal reason, humanly speaking, that I'm convinced of the authority and inspiration of Scripture is that I look and see how Jesus speaks of the Word of God and how he treats it and how he constantly does things in his life to fulfill it. And I challenge you, if this area is some place where you struggle with unbelief, read through the Gospels and particularly note all through the Gospels, Jesus' own response in his life to the Word of God. Note how he uses it. Note how he quotes it. Note how again and again and again the Scriptures says that he said he did certain things so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. And so if you claim to love and to honor Jesus Christ, you believe he is the Son of God, then we ought to have the same faith towards Scripture, the same honoring, the same obedience to it that the Son of God has. If God himself can come to earth and submit himself to a human book of human language, how much more are those of us who are simply flesh and blood? Let us hear the word of God, which is eternally true. John chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark 
and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up at a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, and in this little period here, Mary, teacher, something happened because Jesus said to her, stop, stop clinging to me. Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, the center of this story are three people, setting aside Jesus. There's John, and there's Peter, and there's Mary Magdalene. Now, before we move to Mary Magdalene, let's think for a second about John and Peter. Who were John and Peter? How does John refer to himself in the text? John often, in his own gospel that he wrote, calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. I was thinking about that yesterday, thinking, is, is that show pride? It must have been so clear to everybody who knew the disciples that Jesus particularly loved John, that there was no pride involved in him writing that. And I'm a big believer in not having uh, favorite children. You go into the book of Genesis and you can see how, you know, the devastation that causes in some of the homes back there. But it's very clear that Jesus had a favorite. And this goes against our American notions of fairness um, because we think that there should be strict equality, no distinction, that everything should be copacetic in that direction. 
But God is God, and God has the authority and the power and the freedom to do as he wills. This is by definition who God is. And it's clear that when God came to this earth, that God had a group of inner, an inner core of, of his followers that he called the twelve disciples. These were the apostles. And it's clear that even in that group, there was one disciple that, that he particularly loved, and this is John. And so as we look at this, uh, this group of lovers mourning the death and the burial of their Lord, it's not surprising that this, this man, John, is right there at the very beginning. Now, who is the second person? Well, the second person is Peter. Now, what do we know about Peter? Well, he's perfectly typecast in this text. John's younger and probably stronger, and so as they're running to the grave, John beats Peter. No surprise there, Joseph would beat me, right? But it would probably be like Joseph to stop where? At the edge of the tomb and look in. But when I got there, <laughs> nah, I wouldn't stop at the door. I'd go bombing in. And this is Peter. Peter is beat to the grave, but he doesn't stop at the edge like John. He's, he's brash, he's pushy, and he's like right in the tomb. And he's picking up, you know, he's looking here, looking there. Well, as soon as Peter goes into the tomb, then what happens with John? Well, then John follows Peter into the tomb. All right. And again, if you read the Gospels, you'll see the personalities of these men coming out. But there's something that's much more important that we know about Peter. What is it? What just happened to Peter? Do you remember how Jesus warned Peter that he was going to deny him? And do you remember how Peter responded? Peter's response was to say, absolutely not. I will not betray you. I will die before I will betray you. But then the danger comes, the civil authority and the religious authority and all the tension and the fear for his life and for his family. He goes into that little courtyard and there's that young woman there and they begin to say, aren't you one of his disciples? Jesus is arrested. They say, aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter says what? Bold, brash, big Peter. Peter says, no. They ask him three times, and the Bible tells us that when confronted with this young woman, that Peter's response is not just to say no, but what? He swore, damn it, I told you no. This is Peter. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, look at the text. It says, she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Who was under the cross? Again, it's predictable. The disciple that Jesus loved. John was under the cross watching him. As he died, what did Jesus do with John? A very, very precious moment. Jesus looked at John and he said to his mother who was next to John, this is, your, this is your son, and this is your mother. In other words, he gave John the responsibility of providing and caring for his mother in her old age. He was leaving, and someone needed to take his place. 
And so John was where? John was present at the scene of death. John had not abandoned Jesus. Where was Peter? Peter wasn't there. Peter, had, with many curses, now he, he grieved over it. It caused him to cry. Nevertheless, with curses, he had denied his Lord. Now again, look at the text. What does the text say? The text says this. She ran and came, verse 2, to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them. What does this show? This shows that Simon Peter was not rejected by the Apostle John. This shows that within hours of his betrayal of the Lord, John the lover loved him and received him back. Now ask yourself whether you, had you been John, had you been the lover and the, and the beloved, what would you have done with Peter? Would you have made him pay? Would you have felt that there needed to be maybe six months or a year of him being kept at a distance to learn the nature of betrayal? When I think of some of our marriages, I don't think a year would have been long enough. And I think of the way some of us treat our husbands and wives, our disdain for them, our reminder. Some of you remind your husbands and wives of sins that were committed 20 years ago. Just a little lift of the eyebrow, just a little turning of the head. Just a little lack of love. And boy, you make them pay, don't you? Right? This is who we are. Okay? And so I want to point you to John and to Peter. And I want to point you to the fact that when we have the love of Jesus Christ dwelling in hearts, those hearts are free. Those hearts understand what? They understand, what did John understand? John understood that he was a sinner, that he was no more deserving of the love of his Lord than Peter was. It may even be that John loved Peter because Peter was so different from him. It may be that Peter would, that John would take Peter's failures because of Peter's successes. You remember it was Peter who Jesus turned to and said, who do you say that I am? And it wasn't John, but it was Peter who said what? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. All right? And so I think it's a sweet thing to see here that almost immediately after the crucifixion, we see a demonstration of the love and the forgiveness that is to be at the center of the church. And when we think as a church of those who are excommunicated, those who turn their backs on Christ, we need to remember that those brothers and sisters are welcome back into the church and that we are not punitive, that we don't remind them of their sin, but that we accept them with open arms just as the John, the loved disciple, received Peter back. And of course, the application of this to our homes is so obvious. If in the church, how much more in our marriages and homes are we to receive sinners? And let me tell you, if you're married to a man, he's a sinner. All right? You haven't discovered something that other women don't know. And if you're married to a woman, even though she's sweet, and even though she bakes you apple pie, she is a sinner. Now, the sins that women and men are tempted by are different things, but as Christians, we need to have the love and the forgiveness and the kindness characterize our relationships in our homes and in the church that we see right here 
Peter had denied the Lord. Peter and John were together. John was not ashamed of Peter. And at that moment of intimacy, when all of their hopes and all of their fears were right at the surface about their Lord, they were together running. And that's to be a picture of how we're to be as a church following these disciples. Now, what else is there in the text? Well, we read on and we see that they're actually uh, awakened to what's going on um, by one called Mary Magdalene. Now, who is Mary Magdalene? Now, there is some argument about this because, you know, if you've read the Bible, there are a lot of Marys in the Gospels. And if you read the accounts of Mary Magdalene and the other Marys, you can get confused. And I don't have time to go through why I'm going to say what I'm saying, except to tell you that I believe that Mary Magdalene is obviously this woman, because it says in the text, this is Mary Magdalene, right? But also that Mary Magdalene is the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus, all right? And that Mary Magdalene is the woman, we know this, who had what? What, what does the Scriptures tell us? It tells us that she had seven demons cast out of her by the Lord, all right? And one other thing, Mary Magdalene was the woman who did what? She was the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair. And I want us to read that because that has to be the context in which we understand what goes on here in front of the tomb. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36, please. Brothers and sisters, I, I, as we read this story, I want to make a side note, and that is I want to warn you to be very, very careful about people in positions of authority. We as Christians are so often patriotic and um, very much understanding the necessity of authority and wanting to respect and submit to authority. Um, but I want you, as we read this text, to notice how the religious authority at the time treated Jesus and Mary. And this should make you very, very careful not to just blindly follow anybody who proclaims that they love Jesus and that they're a servant of God. Now, watch what happens here. John, I mean, Luke chapter 7, uh, beginning with verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees, these were the religious, this is like me, a pastor, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is, what? That she is, yeah, but say it the way he would have said it, that she is a sinner. 
She is a sinner. Now watch Jesus. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He should have trembled. And he replied, say it, teacher. He was confident, cocky. After all, he was sitting in the catbird seat. And Jesus said, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I love these first two words. Simon answered at him and said, Well, I suppose... He was not going to get hung in the noose, was he? I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he, Jesus, said to him, You've judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house... You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven." For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, what do we learn about her at this place? We learn that she was a sinner. Now, a lot of people make a big deal out of this. They say that she was a woman of the night. They say all kinds of things, but there are only two things that are said about her from Scripture. That she was a sinner. And listen, if you are at all honest, every single one of you individually, if you're all honest and you read the Bible saying about someone that they were a sinner, your response should be, well, duh. And why? Because you know yourself. All right? It's a truism. It's obvious. It's as obvious as the nose on your end of the face. You can say this about anyone. Now, it's obvious also from the text that she is being singled out for notoriety and sin. All right? In other words, her sin must have been a kind of public sort of sin where people just knew her as the sinner, right? But you remember who Jesus hung with the whole time he was here on earth. It says constantly about Jesus that he hung with the sinners. In other words, Jesus... We refused to spend time with people who sinned secretly. He wanted to be around people who sinned honestly. Okay? And this last week down in Florida, boy, did I hang with sinners. There was nobody gathered there who was not just absolutely honest about who and what they were. And it was such a breath of fresh air. Not once did anybody tell me what degree they held. The university community so that's a little bit dig. And John, that wasn't personal. <laughs> John and I are friends, so he's not mad at me. Um, so this is Mary. Um, and I don't think there's any man who reads this without feeling uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, even someone who's been married to them, maybe especially someone who's been married to the same woman for 50 years, is exceedingly uncomfortable with this. Because after 50 years, you kind of get to the point where 
you know, you get less demonstrative. I was coming in the airport last night and I saw an older couple walking down the, the concourse holding hands. And I just made my heart happy. Well, Mary Magdalene is not holding Jesus' hand. What's she doing? And don't think this is a cultural thing. It's not. I mean, yeah, feet were washed, but what she's doing is unbelievably intimate. She has her hair down, and that's intimate in that culture. You don't just let your hair down with anybody. She has her hair down. She's washing his feet with her hair and with her tears, and she has costly perfume. And she's not doing it privately. Of course, she couldn't, because then that would have sexual connotations. She's doing it right in the middle of all the muckety-mucks in town. They're at a table, and she's like sort of this, you know, maybe this mouse, you know, coming up behind, you know, because he would have had his head where you eat close to the table, and his feet would have been away. So she wasn't pressing herself into the attention of everyone. She was away where his feet were. And what's she doing? She's loving Jesus. Now, when we go back to John and we read the account... Okay, we read the account of the empty tomb. You have a little better of an understanding when it says at the beginning, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. Now you understand this a bit better, don't you? In other words, Mary Magdalene is the parallel among women to the Apostle John among men. She loved. And she doesn't wait until dawn. She's out there while it's still dark. Now, I could go on and I could tell you what a great woman this woman is. But the Bible, and this is another one of the arguments for the inspiration of Scripture, I have never yet met a book written by men where they so parade their own failures and sins and stupidities. Okay? Moses records the fact that he was not allowed to go into the promised land. All right? And we have here the recording of a failure of this wonderful woman. Now, why would I say that? What's her failure? Well, look at the text. The Bible tells us here that she went while it was still dark and the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she knows something's awry, so she runs to the other disciples, okay? In other words... Her faith and her love have hit a conflict. She doesn't go off alone, but she goes to the people of God and she says, help me with this, help me with this. And then John and Peter come and they follow, they get to the tomb. But notice what happens when John and Peter get there. They both see the same things. They have a little bit of a different way of approaching it. But look at what it says in verse 8. It says, so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, which was John, the beloved disciple, then also entered and what? It says, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture. He must rise again from the dead. Now, if you've read the Gospels, what does Jesus Christ say constantly is going to happen? He says that the Son of Man is going to be crucified, dead and buried, but he also says that he will rise again from the dead. In fact, the Bible shows us that when we go back to the story of Jonah, that Jonah being in the belly of the whale for three days is God's prophecy about Jesus, that Jesus will rise from the dead after three days. 
And there are many places in Scripture that point to the necessity of Jesus dying, but also point to his rising from the dead. In other words, when these students of Scripture have been told by Jesus, told by the Old Testament, that their Messiah will be a suffering servant, not a great king, and that he will rise from the dead, and they see the crucifixion and they do not believe that he will rise from the dead, that is a culpable act. In other words, they have sinned in unbelief. And then when they get to the tomb and they see the stone rolled away, they see the grave clothes sitting there neatly. I mean, if you're going to rob a body from the grave, I don't think you're going to first make it naked. Right? You're not going to take off all the clothes so you can go through the streets with a naked man. Right? They see the clothes sitting there. They also see that they're folded neatly and they still don't believe, except one of them. One of them, namely John, he then remembered Scripture and it says he believed. It's very clear that Peter didn't. And it's also very clear that Mary Magdalene did not believe. Okay? So we have John believing, but the others two don't. And so what happens? Well, they went away again to their homes, but there Mary is. She can't get Jesus out of her system. She wants to be at the burial scene, burials and cemeteries and graves. That's where you grieve, right? She was standing outside the tomb weeping. If she was believed that Jesus had been risen from the dead, would she be weeping? Of course not. But she's sitting. That's right. Thank you very much. She's sitting there and she's crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. She can't get it. She loves Jesus. She's had Jesus taken from her. She's seen now that he's gone. She's seen his grave clothes. And she doesn't get it. And she just cries. All right? And as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting at the head, at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Again, she doesn't believe. Why would she say laid them if she believed that he had been risen from the, from the dead? All right? And then we go on and we say, verse 14, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, so she's still crying, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, Jesus, think of Jesus. Did Jesus just ask casual, offhanded questions? No, Jesus was the quintessential diagnostic person, right? Every single question had a point. Simon, I have a question for you. And Simon feels the noose tightening, right? So Jesus asks her two questions. What are the questions that Jesus asks? Okay? Why are you crying and who are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Why are you crying and whom are you seeking? All right? Who was Mary seeking? Now, there's an obvious answer. The obvious answer is she was seeking Jesus. Right? But because it's obvious, you know it's not the right answer. All right? Who was Mary seeking? Yeah? She was seeking Jesus. But let me ask you another question. How many Jesus are there? An infinite number of Jesus. In other words, you say the word Jesus, you haven't said anything because anybody can put any content they want into the word Jesus. Have you learned this? Jesus. 
It can be an expletive. It can be the Jesus of the liberals who says yes to abortion and homosexuality. It can be the Jesus of the Islams who say he was a great prophet. It can be the Jesus of the Mormons who is a God just like you and I may be. I mean, when you say Jesus, you've said nothing. What Jesus was Mary seeking? That's right. That's absolutely right. The Jesus that Mary was seeking was the dead Jesus. I want you to see that these three who loved Jesus and were closer to him than anyone else, John and Peter and Mary, did not get it. And why do I want you to see that? I'm not trying to beat up on them. I want you to see it because I want you to understand that when you don't get it, and when your heart is cold in love and cold in faith, that you're just boringly normal. That the disciples had every single excuse to believe and to see that He was going to be raised from the dead. Every single one. And they didn't get it. And so when Jesus asked these questions, He's pointing to Mary and He's saying, Mary, you don't get it. You are looking for a figment of your imagination. I am not. I am not a great moral leader. <laughs> I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? What does the whole university think about Jesus? I like to get in your faces. <laughs> what does the whole university think about Jesus? The whole university thinks Jesus was a great moral leader. All right? What does Albert Schweitzer say about Jesus, the great organist and, and worker in Africa? Great moral leader. What does he say about Jesus? A great moral leader who ultimately could not pull off the revolution, the enlightenment, the utopia that he wanted. And he failed and was killed. The civil authority won. That's what Albert Schweitzer says about Jesus. Did the civil authority win with Jesus? Mary thought they had. Mary thought that she'd fallen in love with a man who was then crucified and dead and buried. End of story. And all she wanted was his body. What's Mary going to do with his body, right? This woman carrying around Jesus. It's her love. All she's got left is his body, right? Mary was seeking a figment of her imagination. Mary was seeking the same Jesus that many of you believe in. All you believe about Jesus is that He was a great moral leader who showed us how to be more fully human. And I am making fun of it. Because it's pathetic. The disciples did not turn the Roman Empire upside down. And the Roman Empire and all its corruption, the Roman Empire where the emperors would see how much of the blood of bulls they could get on their clothes because they thought the more of the blood of the bulls they got on their clothes, the more immortality they had. The Roman Empire was not changed and reformed by people who had caught a vision of what a fully enlightened man could be. The Roman Empire was changed because those twelve disciples, when they finally got it that Jesus had risen from the dead, every single one of them went to a martyr's death. Including Peter, who before had been such a coward that he cursed in denying his Lord when confronted by a young woman. All right? And Peter, when he died a martyr's death, 
was so ashamed at the thought of being crucified as his Lord was crucified that he demanded that he be crucified upside down to make a distinction between him and his king and his God. In other words, Vince Lombardi is right. Okay? Winning is everything. And Jesus Christ won. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Even his disciples didn't believe it. They couldn't believe it. But Jesus Christ was standing. The grave clothes were wrapped up. The stone was rolled away. They had to resort to lies. You heard the lies earlier. And in a few short years, all right, in a few short years, the whole Roman Empire was completely changed. One of the things that came out again and again in the interviews down in Florida was people kept saying, well, you know, why do you think that someone who has no ability to communicate and who will just simply lay there the rest of her life should continue living? And they were talking about Terry Schiavo. And I said to them, I said, don't you get it? Don't you realize that your entire life you have the privilege of having the inheritance of centuries of Christian faith. I was being interviewed by this woman, a television woman, and she was standing there in a shirt that had real thin straps and then right above her breasts it sort of was cut away and then, you know, so she looked sexy, right? And I looked at her and I said, can you tell me, do you think that in a Muslim land you could dress that way? I said, do you think that women are given freedom to make the choices you, ch you make in other parts of the world? You get my point? I mean, my point is, and I wasn't saying that she was dressed well. I, you know, I wasn't making a value judgment about her, right? Um, but my point was that her very freedom to be who she was and to make decisions about how she dressed was a result of the freedom that the, that, that the Christian faith has brought to the Western world. I said the end of, the, end of the, the creation of hospitals, the, the, the end of slavery, and I went through all the great social reform movements. All of them came from Scripture. All of them. You look at the ancient Roman Empire and ancient Greece, and you look at the decadence, and you think of America today and everything we're turning our backs on. And you can grieve or you can say, praise God that America has such a wonderful heritage to remind people of. Why did this happen? It didn't happen because Jesus was a great moral leader and everybody was so impressed with the values and choices that Jesus had made that they thought, well, I'm going to make those values and choices my values and choices. The reason that the disciples turned the Roman Empire upside down and the reason that you're sitting here today is that the people who loved Jesus saw him. Winning was everything. God was not about to let puny men whoop up on his son. I mean, do you get this? Everybody in the plains last night cheering because Illinois won. And I'm sitting there reading about the resurrection. I mean, how can we understand this when it comes to basketball teams, the NCAA tournament? And we have, like, no understanding that God will win. You know, some of you are sitting there. You're completely cynical and skeptical. You're going, oh, this is going to be, come on. Okay, okay. Right? 
Do you realize that their day is soon coming when you will stand before the living God and seated at his right hand is Jesus Christ? Do you realize that you will be judged for your response to that son of God? Do you realize that father is jealous for the honor and glory of his son? Do you realize this? Do you realize that Jesus himself said, what do you think the father will do when he comes back to these servants who killed his son? You say, well, I didn't kill him. I say, yes, you did. You killed him. Every single day that you hear his name proclaimed and you turn away from him, you are crucifying our Lord because he demands that you bow your knee to him. Okay, so here's the point. Mary Magdalene's wonderful. John's wonderful. The Apostle Peter are wonderful. They have many glorious traits. But the principal thing you need to know about them is that when push came to shove, they failed. And the one that was successful was not any man or woman. The one that was successful was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the reason he was successful was that he was the son of the living God. And God is not about to allow anyone to trample on his son. The reason Jesus died was so that you and I could be covered with his blood. And his father, who is perfectly holy, has decreed that anyone that is under his blood will be covered. Why? Again, because he honors his son. Any of you that have sons, you ought to be able to understand this. God has chosen to have the thing that tests human souls be their response to the blood of his son. And God vindicated that son when he did the work on the cross by raising him from the dead. Okay? That's the whole gospel. And so this is how you're left. The same question that Mary Magdalene, this wonderful woman, was left with. Who are you seeking? Who are you seeking? Are you seeking your own honor and your own glory? Are you seeking degrees? You're seeking money? You're seeking a wife? You're seeking sex? You're seeking... I don't know what you're seeking. Who are you seeking? You're seeking the victory of Illinois or whoever else is playing? You're seeking retirement? What? Who are you seeking? And if you say it's Jesus, is it the Jesus of Scripture or is it the Jesus that's impotent? And it's not whether you win or lose, but it's how you play the game. Now, if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, the Apostle Paul says, we of all men are most to be pitied. Let's pray.